in fairness and open disclosure, I definitely have had my moments of pity party, you know, like <laughs> I'm very, very normal like everyone else. You know, there's been some hard moments, you know, finger painting poop on the wall or on the television screen. I've had uh, the kids cut out the speaker cones when when things were at their worst. And um, my kids are a little bit alphabet soup. My youngest has a diagnosis of ADHD and Asperger's. So, you know, if not me, then whom is really a very driving uh, force behind everything I do. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. This week I have Dr. Scott Wustenberg on the show. I'm really excited about this. Scott is one of my main caregivers. He's one of the amazing chiropractors that I do choose to see. Uh, he's in Brisbane. I also see some beautiful uh, chiropractors and practitioners here on the Sunshine Coast, but I really wanted to bring Scott to you. He is the visionary and principal practitioner behind Advanced Rehab, uh, which was also known as Optimal Life Natural medicine. Dr. Scott Wustenberg is far from your average chiropractor. He is passionate teacher in nutrition and chiropractic neurology, and he also holds a master's in nutritional medicine. He was inspired to become a chiropractor by his uncle, as you'll hear in the intro when we first start chatting. He first taught sacral occipital technique in Australia in 1974, the year that Scott was born. Scott went on as he grew to study biochemistry and physiology at Auckland University and then went on to the chiropractic school in New Zealand. He graduated in the first class and has practiced in New Zealand, Brisbane and Warwick. In addition to his Bachelor of Science degree in chiropractic, Scott also holds a master's degree, as I said, in nutritional medicine. He also has incredible range of chiropractic techniques, including neurorehabilitation, sacro-occipital techniques, soft tissue orthopedics. He's diversified techniques, biomechanics, and cranial therapy. Dr. Scott also uses orthomolecular medicine, commonly known as functional nutrition, to holistically treat his patients. His passion is evident in coaching people to plan their health for the future. He is a proponent, proponent of unlocking health potentials through nutrition and exercise. He's treated many sporting champions, including, including Super 15 rugby union players, the New Zealand Olympic kayaking squad, who went on to win gold at the World Championships and silver at the Olympics in the K1s. And this year, it was time for Dr. Scott to embrace his inner athlete and placed first and second and third in competitive Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He is truly living testimony to the joyous potential of nutrition and physical activity contributing to an optimal life. I know that you're going to love this conversation. He speaks very, I guess you could say scientifically in some ways, but I dare say that you, the self-love listener, is going to absolutely love the science and the way that Scott describes how we can live at our optimum best. I really encourage you to follow him, all his uh, following and socials and website will be in the notes at the end. And he also speaks about that at the end of the podcast. But I really do want to encourage you at this particular time in our lives to take care of yourself and your family, to really listen to the words that he talks about around self-love and to honor your body and treat it wholeheartedly like the machine of a Lamborghini or an Olympian athlete it's time that we woke up and started to realize that what we put into and onto our bodies, and that's not just in what food and what skincare products, but also what we nourish our thoughts, our brain, as you're going to hear the power of what our brain is capable of and even more capable of, maybe even particularly through these really challenging times. I think he's an extraordinary human. I'm really excited to bring you uh, to his world and to maybe start to see things, hopefully, a little bit more expansively, cohesively, and certainly intelligently. I hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I look forward to your comments. Don't forget to go to my Facebook page, Kim Morrison, 
and also Instagram, Kim Morrison and the number 28. You can head on over to the wellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. And I really want to acknowledge and thank 28 Essentials for being the sponsor of this show. If you haven't and aren't able to come to my live event, the Essential Self-Care Weekend, then please reach out to me via the Self-Love and Wellness Mentorship Program. Uh, and you can go to that by going to kimmorrison.com. You can find out more information there in either my mentorship program or indeed my one-on-one coaching and mentorship that I absolutely have the love and pleasure of doing. I really hope you are ready for this week's podcast. You may need, I've taken 37 pages of notes. My hand is killing me with everything that I tried to take note of with Scott speaking, but I think you'll find like I do, he's one hell of a human being. Take care now. Well, as you can hear in the intro, I am incredibly excited to bring to you a very special human, someone who is, I would consider, one of the most cleverest people I've ever met, someone who has a huge regard for the human body and mind, and someone who always inspires me to think differently and beyond the realm. And it is indeed a pleasure to welcome you to the Self Love Podcast, gorgeous Scott Austenberg. Wow. <laughs> that was a very humbling and uh, appreciated uh, statement. I, I got a lot to live up to there. Thank you. Uh, you are incredible. I mean, my daughter first met you as a ballerina and told me she'd met this amazing Cairo nutritionist, um, someone who understood all about the neurology, someone who was also really passionate about nutrition and had worked with athletes. And I just thought it sounded too good to be true, to be honest. But when I met you, not only did you call me on all of my stuff, but you also have such an incredible resounding knowledge for the body. Could you give our beautiful listener an insight as to what led you to become one of the best and most amazing researchers and clinicians that I've ever met? Oh, um, well, started many, many years ago, <laughs> like one of those classic old stories. Um, I started in chiropractic uh, to start with. Well, actually, I started in biochemistry and physiology is more to the truth of it. That was my very first degree, and I completed my chiropractic degree afterwards. And I was inspired, actually, by my uncle, who uh, was out in practice in about 1974, which is actually the year I'm born. And from there, uh, I wanted to, to do something. I just woke up one day, literally in my final year at school, and went, I'm going to become a chiropractor. And I abandoned every part of my, my scholastic ability, which was business studies and economics and things like that, and went on and dedicated my life to actually becoming a chiropractor and then morphed into what I'm doing at this moment. Now, along the way, I got married to my beautiful wife and we had kids. And about 18 months of age, my eldest daughter uh, stopped performing in the same way. She was neurotypical at birth, and then she started to become autistic over a period of time. And conventional treatment, whether it was chiropractic or medicine, weren't touching her, and she was getting basically worse and worse. So she went from having words and talking to not having any words, and she became basically very insulated to the world. Uh, you couldn't really communicate with her. And I just took on the fact that, that children choose us and that they are there for our growth equally as much as their own growth. And it was my responsibility to help her have a better life. And what I was doing wasn't helping her. Where I was going wasn't helping her. So I changed. I had to grow. I had to learn more and I had to get different tools in my tool bag. The concept of if all you've got is a hammer uh, rang very true because all you can do is hit everything as if it's a nail and that just wasn't working for my daughter. So I had to get new and I had to get different. Now, in all the stress of that, what ended up occurring is I got pleurisy and I ended up in hospital and the treatment in hospital ended me with bleeding of the bowel for six months. So alongside helping my daughter grow out of where she was, I had to then help condition myself out of inflammatory bowel. And that took some doing. And unfortunately, my standard 
methodology, my, my chiropractic, the work that I was doing didn't help me either. So I had to learn about nutrition. Now, nutrition is the world interface of biochemistry. What you put into yourself shapes your body's reality. And then, of course, what your, your brain, what your mind does conditions the output of your nervous system, conditions the output of your epigenetics to form you in your environment as part of a survival thrival mechanism. So I had to learn a whole bunch of stuff that was both very technical and also very esoteric. You need that interplay of how the mind is working and how the body is working to actually harmonize so you have a really nice output. And so I'm pleased to say, you know, 17, 18 years down the track from that, we're both in a much healthier place. It's quite incredible as you tell your story because I'm sitting here going, instead of sitting there, you know, as someone maybe quite typical could think that the world's against you and why me, what I'm so inspired by you is you've almost got the attitude of why not me and you seem to go after that. Has that continued for you over the last 17, 18 years and does it keep developing as you had more children? Absolutely it does. In fairness and open disclosure, I definitely have had my moments of pity party, you know, like <laughs> I'm very, very normal like everyone else, you know, there's been some hard moments, you know, finger painting poop on the wall or on the television screen. I've had uh, the kids cut out the speaker cones when, when things were at their worst. And um, my kids are a little bit alphabet soup. My youngest has a diagnosis of ADHD and Asperger's, so you know, if not me, then whom is really a very driving uh, force behind everything I do. So my middle daughter has gone on to develop uh, a autoimmune condition called mast cell activation syndrome. So that very greatly inspired me to have to learn a whole new set of skills and a whole new way of dealing with things. And especially this idea of dealing with autoimmunity from a brain-based focus rather than a purely biochemical-based focus. So Absolutely, it's continued on. Now, I would like to point out that I'm very proud of my eldest who has graduated from a very rough start. She actually got an ATAR and, and graduated high school last year. So things are possible to change. We don't have to accept what what hand you seem to be dealt with. Everything is possible. That's, you know, one of my favorite thought processes. You just keep going. Why is that then? That is there something around what happened with your sperm, your wife's egg that created these three, you know, as you say, alphabet soup types? Or is there something that you've learnt that created these outcomes? What what is your reality around why your three girls have all had such challenges? That's a really, really, really interesting question. I'm not sure I actually have a brilliant answer to that one, to be perfectly fair. The, the most simplistic thing I can say is that their, their situation is a combination of their epigenetics, uh, how much stress my wife and I were perhaps under, where we were at the time. So I've done a lot of research on it. And so I've looked at uh, where we were living, which had a, a three times higher rate of breast cancer and special needs children. Uh, it was a market gardening farming area. And there's a whole lot to be said uh, about that being a potential problem. Uh, I know that uh, the environmental uh, pollution of diesel black coming from uh, large amounts of tankers and cattle trucks in the area could have had an impeding effect because it drives a lot of inflammation. Uh, there's epigenetics towards methylation that can affect how the, the genes get output. But along the way, ultimately, it's the changes in expression of how the genes are working and changes in expression in the development of the brain that I think makes the biggest difference. So there's these things called primitive reflexes that, that all children are born with, and they're meant to finish at a certain point in time. And what we know is that traumas to the system, whether it's physical trauma from birth. Now, in my eldest case, she had a very uh, difficult birth. It was 27 hours. She was stuck in the, the pelvis for a large portion of that time. Uh, there were threats of forceps deliveries and C-section. So a lot more adrenaline uh, passing through the system at that moment. And we know that there is a link between excess adrenaline and cortisol and stressful births and outcomes of deviation of uh 
atypical or rather typical neuronal development leading to atypical outcomes. So if the primitive reflexes stay, the nervous system doesn't develop along what we'd consider a normal path. The child stays in a fight flight response. And we've got genes in there that when expressed epigenetically in a fight flight state, give you a very different trajectory uh, to what we'd want to normally expect in, in that development. And then we can look at some of the history of uh, there's celiac genes in the family and we were eating uh, a high dairy, high gluten diet and that really didn't kind of work out wonderfully well. And, you know, one of the, the founding things that really made the difference for her was after we found out about those genes and we took the whole family off gluten and dairy products. Now, again, I don't want anyone expecting that they'll get exactly the same results that we did, but we took Megan off gluten and dairy products just wholesale. One day we were eating it, one day we weren't eating it. Five days later, we had words coming out of her, and seven days later, we had sentences. So that food was very strongly messing with how her brain was able to express itself uh, in the world and creating such a significant irritation to the system that she couldn't perform at her utmost best. So I don't know exactly what the singer, I don't think there's a singular thing that really is affecting most children. I'd like to point out that there are true genetic autisms. There are about one in 10,000 according to the data and that's uh, the current sudden increase does not appear to be due to better uh, diagnosis, according to a lot of the literature. Uh, some people are saying it's better diagnosis, it's that we're more aware of it. That doesn't really account for the very rapid increase in the alteration of, of our children. I think there's a lot of societal change that's gone on. Our food supply is very different. Our nourishment is very different. What we do with our bodies is very different. Most of our children are spending their developmental time sitting down in front of TVs, computers, playing games. They're not actually playing games like climbing and falling out of trees. They're not skipping. They're not doing hand games or, you know, prosodic melody games that help drive the brain's development to make us what we've been for many, many thousands of years. So I think we're really sitting in this perfect storm believing that civilization is so wonderful and it's probably actually the thing that's causing most of our troubles at this moment. But who wants to give up their nice comfy armchairs, right? Well, that's the big challenge, isn't it? I remember seeing a picture, an image of what looked like it was in about the 1960s and it was a black and white photo of a whole lot of men sitting at the train station reading the same paper. The picture underneath it was a whole lot of different aged people looking down at their phones and the comment was, we're not reading the same thing every day. Every single person is reading something different. Not only that, from a chiropractic point of view, I'm curious to know your thought processes around all the different information that's now available to us. Like you say, is it the awareness or is it the fact that there's just more information? And then neurologically, what's happening to our heads, our necks, our young people looking at phones or all of us looking down and looking at computers? How is that impacting our health and neurology these days? Severely. Now, it's an interesting thing. We, we've been hearing this statement around text neck for some time, you know, staring at the phone, staring at iPads and, and devices like that. Now, realistically, we've only had books for a few hundred years available to, to the open public. So we could say book neck was exactly the same. Newspaper neck was exactly the same. It's not that staring at the screen reading is actually so much the problem. There's a bunch of other things that are going into that, one of which is this uh, activity of scrolling that the phones so greatly have versus a book. The, the word and the world, therefore, is not stable, and it causes a uh, nystagmic-type movement of the eyes. So the eyes bounce up and down as you're scrolling. Now, that causes an activation of the inner ear, specifically an area called the otoliths, that tell your brain you're moving. 
Now, you're not moving, so your brain gets this, this disconnect between what it sees and what it thinks it's seeing, which is driving uh, a whole bunch of dysfunctions. We also know that staring at the screen too close drives the eyes into a conjugated, so a tight squeeze together, which is shown to release a lot of cortisol into the system. So this drives an unconscious potential for anxiety. We also know that this complete lack of movement, and, and again, when I say that, I mean, if we went back 100 years compared to what the kids are doing now, their childhood doesn't have the same movement patterns that 100 years ago child of the same age would have. There's just not the same muscular physical development. There's not the near to far-sightedness. What we do is near near-sightedness. We go from a page close to us, about a foot away, to the computer screen, which might be two feet away, rather than something that's like a foot and a half away to 20 meters away, looking out into the distance, looking for something to hunt, looking for uh, the leaves or looking out into the distance. We are too close to ourselves and this upsets our brain's map of ourself in space and time and therefore its development. We're not getting the strength of our spinal muscles because we don't do the same activities. We're not climbing. Like when I was at high school, we had to do climbing up a, a big knotted rope to the ceiling, which is like, you know, 10 meters up, touch the ceiling and climb back down again. That's an occupational safety health lawsuit waiting to happen. So we just don't do those sorts of things anymore. If you look back at the 50s and 60s, the big uh, jungle gym equipment and the the physical activity that they had to do is not part of the physical education curriculum. And the physical education curriculum has been shrunk and shrunk for didactic learning, maths and technology and all these um, scholastic skills have been overly emphasized way and above the, the importance of physical movement and physical development. Now, what people aren't really understanding here is that brain development is actually a direct consequence and learning is a direct consequence of physical movement. So your physical body drives how your brain develops. And if you have poor tone in your muscles, you have poor tone and firing aspects in your brain. And we can get a whole bunch of different imbalances and brain pathways not merging that can lead to uh, a lot of you know, health consequences. So I don't know, like I'm not going to sit here and say, ah, oh, well, reading a paper was, was good and reading the phone is bad because it's not like that. But it's the degree of technology has moved on from how our systems were very developed and we're allowing our, our children to get access to things that probably isn't as good for their development. They're watching too much TV from far too early on. It's shown to upset their light dark patterns that upsets melatonin production so they can't go down to sleep. Therefore, their brains aren't getting detoxification. They're not getting the the healing time because you do all your growth and healing and detoxification when you're asleep not during the day so if you don't sleep deeply because you've got too much uh blue light hitting your your brain you're going to mess up your light dark cycles which upsets all of your hormonal systems now some people obviously will ride through that better than others but children are very sensitive to these things and it can affect them for the rest of their lives, I think. Now, again, other people might disagree with me, but that's my interpretation of the literature. Yeah, I think it's, and it makes sense. And I'm, I'm curious then from your perspective as someone who obviously does research a lot of this, what would then, let's bring it back into the practical everyday mum and dad with one, two, three, four, five kids. It's full on, life's busy. Everyone seems to be, and I might be generalizing here, in a little bit more of a stress state response, more in, mm -hmm. a, I guess, what you guys call sympathetic dominance, which is shown very strongly in these days, this day and age, with all our responses to health or non-health. What would then be your practical advice to the everyday mum and dad listening to this in order to support the growth and development of our children? Ooh. I think all children probably need to learn music. I think all children probably need to do some form of martial arts, my favourite being something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or Judo. 
we need to strengthen their bodies and we need to like practically, if it was at all possible, I would ban screen time, televisions, phones, iPads, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I'm, I'm using iPad as a general uh, generic device for any of the, the tablet sort of things uh, as against picking on one company specifically. But, you know, prior to eight years of age, I would have all those things out. I would send my kids, if possible, to schools that don't emphasize everything being done on a laptop, which is where lots and lots of primary and high schools are going. We want to use things that drive finger movements and finger dexterity, fine motor control, as well as gross motor control. We need to get those bodies developing in a way that's not what we're currently doing. That doesn't mean that we don't need to learn, you know, economics or technology or otherwise. It just means that we need to give greater credence to what's worked for us for thousands and thousands of years to help our brains develop that give us physical strength. I would obviously be looking at things also from a nourishment and diet point of view. You are absolutely shaped by what you're nourished by. Now, nourishment's a big term and it's, I think particularly important. It's not just food and nutrients, it's sunlight and love and connectedness and feeling nourishment comes through so many different aspects and connects us to the world and the environment around us. But if we just take the biochemical aspects of it, we eat too much food-like substance. Now, what that simply means is that the food starts off as one product and then gets put through multiple, multiple chemical processes to come out as something that we say, oh, this is, for instance, tofurkey or, you know, facon. You know, these, these are things made of like a soy product. So it started as a soybean and now it looks like a, a bacon rasher. Well, that, that's not actually necessarily food, although lots of people eat it. And to make it taste nice, it's got a whole bunch of chemicals in it, including potentially excess sugars. It might have excessive amounts of preservatives. And these things all have effects on the brain and on the liver and on your digestive tract, and they alter your gut bacteria. Now, if you upset your gut bacteria, you're in a world of hurt. Now, one of my favorite concepts that I was given last year in a lecture uh, by a world-renowned uh, microbiologist was functionally, we are the custodians of our biome of the future. So we give our children our biome, especially the mothers out there. The men don't have quite as much impact on that because we're not quite so involved in the creation. But if you don't have good uh, microbacteria in your gut, you're handing them over to your children, then if you malnourish the children with excessive amounts of sugar and carbohydrates and fake food, not you know high-class protein, high-class vegetables, the bacteria are going to grow out of balance. And then they're going to hand that on to other kids into the future. Now, we know categorically that alterations in the biome will have a negative impact on health and well-being as well as brain development. There are a whole bunch of interesting effects that things like strep, staph and clostridia have on, on children's mental states. One of the things that we had to deal with uh, with my, my eldest daughter was a condition called PANDAS, which is Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Acquired by Strep. So she got a strep infection and it caused her, her brain to just massively malfunction. She would lose memory. She would lose the ability to kind of think about things, dress herself. And when we actually treated her with antibiotics for the strep infection, her life, her health, her well-being came back. And again, that was very instrumental in her climbing out of the morass. So again, the, the doctor that we worked with was majorly impactful on, on where we are. And again, you know, every tool has its place. You need a multitude of different ones. But again, I can look back and be critical of uh, some of the decisions I made, the foods that I gave my children while I was in a much greater survival state, not having my current knowledge. And 
so you know we've we've altered things i've taken away uh from their lives a whole lot of um, you know non-food items they don't uh, go to the standard fast food restaurants my youngest has never eaten at any of the the classic burger joints or or chicken joints in the world so to speak um you know, we've we've altered those things so that they can have a healthier life. Now, again, I'm prepared for other people to disagree with me. These are the choices that I made, and these are the things that appear to have helped my children live more fruitfully and live healthier lives. But nourishing them, getting them vitamins and minerals and amino acids from protein, clean water, like water is, is a massive impact on people's health. The, the things like uh, chlorine. So we put lots of chlorine in the water and it keeps it clean and it sanitizes it and it kills off the bacteria, right? But we don't filter out the dead bacteria and we don't remove the chlorine. And chlorine is still a biotoxin for your gut bacteria. So if you pour highly chlorinated water in, it will have an impact, even at microdoses. But microdoses of a toxin over a long period of time create trouble for us. Chlorine is also capable of displacing iodine out of the system. Now, the statistics out there in Australia show that about one in three women have some degree of hypothyroidism. Perhaps microdosing a toxin that displaces iodine could have some effect on it. Now, there's no research to say categorically that equates to that, but it would be really helpful for us if some of our public health schools actually went, well, why is that? Let's get some research going. Maybe we can clean the water supply in a different way that's nearly as cheap, but has less other health consequences into the future. So, yeah, nourishing the kids would be an absolutely critical thing to do. Get rid of food-like substances. Try and get them things that look like food. You know, if, if it kind of is orange and carrot-shaped, it's probably worth eating. If it's kind of orange and, and fluorescent and bright jelly blobs, it's probably not worth eating, so to speak. And something I, I classically tell my patients is that if you can grind it up into a, a floury substance and mix it with water and stick paper to the wall, you probably shouldn't eat it. So It's, it's a classic, isn't it? Because I, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a nutritionist, Scott. I'm fascinated by the body and having been an athlete, I've always been interested for myself, my husband and my children as to how to get the maximum return and response out of that. That just comes from an innate intelligence, not a scientific intelligence. And so I'm curious as to how, and, and I'm not knocking the medical system, but when I was in hospital to have back surgery a number of years ago, the food that they dished up to me, which I've since learned was based on a $9 per person per day budget, certainly was not about nourishing my body into a healing state. How the hell do we get this across that even someone like me can see that if I want to have a Lamborghini engine, I can't just put the cheapest fuel into that to make it run effectively. I treat my body and my family's body like they're Lamborghinis. I look at them as high-performing athletes. Is that a cool way to approach it? Is it a better way? How do we even get the hospital system to understand that? Because surely the $9 per person per day is actually costing us long-term. I totally agree. I actually really like that thought. I've classically said to my patients, again, you're a Lamborghini, not a Lada. Now, Ladas have their place. And, and the place is, if we're in, in kind of post-World War III apocalypse, I'm probably going to want the ladder because it's going to keep going consistently over and above the Lamborghini. But in all other states, you are a high-performance, highly-tuned uh, vehicle. And I actually quite like that concept with regards to bacteria, just as an aside. One of the statements that I was given to think on is that perhaps we are actually like a car driving our bacteria around in the universe. Now, I'll leave that out there for the listeners to think on. It changed my way of viewing the world. I love that. I love it. <laughs> we are more bugs than we are human. Is that not that true? That is exactly what they're, they're guesstimating at this moment, that there's way more bacterial cells in us than there are our own cells. But, you know, and that's kind of why they can actually affect and shape our consciousness and amounts of inflammation, et cetera. But if, if we... Like I choose to have my family eat almost entirely organically, okay? So 
organic food doesn't necessarily guarantee more nourishment, but what I'm hoping is that it takes away a larger plethora of potentially harmful chemicals. Now, again, because we have a, a system that, that uses an LD50, so the LD50 is we stick 100 rats in a box and we feed them a certain chemical and we look at the dose of feeding them till uh, 50 of them die. Right, and that's that's the accepted lethal dose of a chemical, and that's how we deal with things. And the problem is, our entire system is based on this trajectory of a little bit of a poison is not too bad, but a lot of a poison is is really harmful, and that's not really how things work. And thalidomide's a really great example of that because testing on rats showed no problems, testing on humans showed big problems in the fetal developmental phase. So some toxins are really harmful at low doses and have an entire different effect at a higher dose. Some toxins have an effect at a certain point of development and not at a different point of development. So we need to be thinking a bit more big picture, a bit more God's eye view about what we're doing and not valuing money as the only productive output. Now, again, I think we need to change our society's entire way of, of viewing health and well-being and gross domestic product and the issue is places that have like happiness as a, a viewpoint of gross domestic product, we kind of get into this problem of well, what is happiness? And that's a really difficult thing to answer. And from one perspective, I don't actually believe that happiness really is a good end outcome. Human beings aren't really well designed to be happy. That is a very fleeting state that you keep chasing, but you need to actually be going through an entire range of emotions to actually live a fruitful life. Staying in one state is actually a form of mania and that's not real well balanced. So I'm not sure what the absolute answer there is, but valuing our outcome on dollar terms and productivity based on dollar terms, you know, $9 per serve doesn't really bring the right things to the table. We should be thinking about, okay, well, if we kind of nourish, you can go back to, to the, the ideas from, uh, from ancient Greece where, you know, food be thy medicine kind of comes to the forefront. And if we nourish our people prior to, perhaps we'll actually end up with less need for drug surgery and medicine. Now, again, we've got a system that sort of, I think, almost trapped itself in its own brilliance. You know, it does such good things and it can save so many lives that we can't kind of step outside that, that magnificence to look at other aspects. And we really need to be going in that direction. So as to think about, well, human beings are made of stuff. That stuff is particularly important for their end outcomes. And even if you need surgery, the stuff, the matter matters. If you don't uh, put the right level of a chemical, like tryptophan or glycine or glutamine or, or whichever other amino acid that you need, branched chain amino acids, for instance, you're not going to have accelerated healing or you might have dysregulated healing and poor scar tissue and leave the person in an inflammatory state. So, yeah, I totally agree. And uh, that must have been a hard place. But at least you had kind of some other knowledge to think about that once you got out of the hospital environment, you could start altering things. And that's a blessing in the first place. It's kind of sadder for the people who don't have exposure to your way of thinking that that really are going to suffer and they become repeat ill health people. And that's, that's the saddest thing for them. So let's hope that more people hear about what we're saying and, and get that data out to them. Yeah, I think it's it's all around education, isn't mm. it? And for me, I look at plane flights, not that there's many at the moment, <laughs> um, but plane flights and um, hospital stays, the few that I've had to endure, have been, I've looked at them as a cleanse and oh, I, yeah. uh, took on, I took on the, the value that that was, you know, a, a long intermittent fasting regime that I took myself on. Plus I had beautiful friends and family bring me wonderful food like chicken soup, which I still think to this day is one of my most favourite healing products on the planet especially when it's homemade I just want to go a little bit personal with you if it's all right you have a wealth of knowledge around 
everything from the minute structure of the cell through to epigenetics, through to I've watched the way you read uh, someone's DNA. I love the way you articulate the way the brain works and all the functionality from a neurological, physiological and biochemical aspect. How does Scott keep himself happy and buoyant? And how, I would imagine, have you looked after yourself to research the way you have would I be fair to say that maybe you've not had as much sleep as you could have had over the years based on your children and your life? How has this affected your relationship, the happiness of Scott? What have you done to take care of you through all of these times? That's a, that's a brilliant and deep question. I actually get a lot more sleep now than I ever used to. Uh, university was the worst time for sleep uh, and the first couple of years of my eldest daughter's life. Uh, I used to sleep four hours a day at university, uh, so I don't recommend that to anyone else out there. Sleep is an absolute imperative. Um, I worked a full-time job, did two degrees at the same time, and so sleep was the thing I thought was uh, expendable. Not a very clever idea. So uh, when Megan was waking up in the middle of the night at one o'clock in the morning, screaming hysterically and smashing her head into the wall, I would take her out driving because the the vibration, the oscillation, etc., cetera, uh, would lull her back off to sleep when nothing else would. So that was definitely a low sleep time in my life. But as I've gone on, I, I practice uh, a lot of concepts of congruence. And congruence for me means if I'm saying it to you, I need to be practicing it myself. I've bought things like the aura ring to track my sleep and keep me honest with myself and know how much sleep I'm getting and, and when I'm uh, falling behind in my commitments to myself. I have very, very strong habits that I've developed. I get up basically at the same time every day. I try and go down to sleep at the same time every day. I take supplements at the same sorts of times every day. I eat certain, I eat a varied diet, but I eat in a similar fashion basically every day. I fast intermittently on uh, certain days of the week, not every day, but I, I do these things regularly. So one of the things that I found fundamentally that's worked well for me is the concept of uh, regimenting and, and creating automation in my life that my routines that make me more healthy keep me in that state. I've added things like hyperbaric oxygen therapy to my life. And I try and spend a couple of hours every week in uh, a hyperbaric oxygen chamber to try and drive more oxygen in to keep my brain as bubbly, literally, as possible. Um, again, I've spent a fair chunk of my uh, my time studying people like Stephen Porges's work and um, Stephen Hayes, who does acceptance commitment therapy. And I'd like... Again, the, the idea of accepting oneself is, is critical. And so, again, there's certain things that I, I do that are absolutely imperative. I just accept and love me for who I am. I'm not necessarily the best version of me, but I can get up and I can commit every day to trying to be the best version of me. And each day I go on and keep working at being the best version of myself. Now, it's the journey of being the best version of myself and the commitment and the congruence and the integrity of that viewpoint that I think is most important. If I have a bad day, great. So what? I get up, I'm going to do it again tomorrow and keep committing to improving, to changing, to connect with people. So along the way, uh, things like acceptance, commitment therapy has helped me you know, rid myself of past hurts and, and traumas so that I can uh, basically connect with my wife more effectively and be more capable of, you know, hearing her needs, actually expressing my needs and trying to move on a more, again, congruent pattern to be there for my children. I made a decision uh, many years ago not to be a shouty daddy because I don't think that's a healthy thing for my kids. And again, every day I have to reaffirm my commitment to that because sometimes kids are a little bit challenging and they can be kind of designed to push your buttons and it teaches you to grow and you go, that's right patience and, and just slow and flow. And again, there's there's no one thing, but it's the 
continued dedication and the integrity of doing things, accepting the commitment every day. It's not like I did it once and, and then because I made a commitment 10 years ago, it's still, you have to keep focusing on it. You have to keep it in mind. You have to keep practicing what you're talking about. And I do certain things uh, like I'm, I'm in the public eye a lot. So there's, there's absolutely no chance of me wanting to get caught out as a hypocrite. I tell you that. So, um, <laughs> I saw once, I saw a quote once that they say, you teach what you need to learn the most. Is that fair for you that it keeps you accountable and in the work, so to speak, if that's what we could call it? I think that's a great way of putting it. You you have to be uh, in the work. You have to live with accordance. And like I, I'll tell people, especially if I'm, I'm talking about their DNA, I've got some, some lines that I choose not to cross. I choose not to be, move into what I call tinfoil hat land. Um, and what I mean by that is, when you you get so deep into this world of you know health and well-being you can get very extreme to the point where you're no fun to be around and and you're so serious about oh, well i can't do that because that could have been i can't do that and and you just drive yourself bananas and the problem with that is actually that you create so much stress for yourself that you're actually harming yourself while trying to help yourself and that doesn't actually work so you kind of need to set a level of tolerance as to what you consider is is where it's going to be. And so, like, I'll talk to people and I'll say, well, I've got this particular gene here, which says that, you know, eating hot chips isn't going to be a particularly good thing, but I'm ignoring it because I like hot chips and I'm going to own that. I'll tell anyone that I will eat hot chips. And if that's the thing that, that takes some years off my life, great, because I enjoyed that and it was a conscious choice and I'm okay with that. And... You have to kind of, that's that concept of integrity and congruence. You don't kind of go, well, I'm drinking a bottle of whiskey in the background, but you can't do this. It's like everyone needs to see you as if you're an open book so that they can see that you stand for something. Because that classic quote of, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, I think rings absolutely true. Again, hypocrisy, no. I think it's an incredibly powerful place. As a dad, as a mum, as a, as a parent, anyone listening to this, what do you think, how would you express your love and desire for them to live a congruent, integral, authentic life where they can love themselves, warts and all, know that some days aren't going to be great days? How are you teaching your children the power of congruence? What is some of your advice around that to the rest of us? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not actually sure I've got any great advice on that one. <laughs> As I said, my children, I think, are probably my hardest challenge and, and only time is going to tell. Uh, one of the, the things that I do is I try and lead uh, a life by example that I'm open, I, I have uh, intellectual and emotional discussions with my children, I'm happy for them to... Uh, come at me with whatever they think is wrong and, and give them a structured discussion about why uh, that may or may not be so. It, it's trying to be there in the moment with them for their hurts, their needs, their worries. But I don't know how I'm doing on that one. And as I said, only time is going to tell. Um, you know, part of the, the mysteries of life is that you... Uh, make yourself a better person to find someone who likes you enough to have children to try and imbue in them some of what you consider aspects of, of brilliance, whatever they might be, that they might become a decent human being and kind and considerate, that they can raise children and pass that stuff on because it's it's programmed epigenetically into our, our DNA and it passes down the generations. So I'm not going to know for some fair while how I've actually done. So <laughs> I don't I don't have a good answer. But again, it, it's that idea of living your word, being there for them, uh, accepting their statements and having a discussion and allowing them to be autonomous people. They get the right to have a disagreement with you. You can't be a dictator to them. But there's also this concept of boundaries. And I think, um, you know, one of my favorite things that I think is missed out on for kids, we don't teach them to suffer. You know, everything is hospital corners. You can't allow them to get hurt. And the problem is, is that suffering is a learned capacity. 
to suffer allows you to move past it. So if we take these, uh, you know, almost Zen and Buddhist concepts, the idea is to be able to to view your suffering dispassionately, that it doesn't consume you. And if there's one thing I, I try and get through to my kids, it's that it's okay to suffer. It's that it's okay to be hurt because you can come out the other side and be a better, more interesting, creative person for that. It doesn't harm you. I mean, you know, if you lose a limb, it's not such a great thing. But if you lose a limb, you still have to come out the other side and not be consumed by it. Do not become the victim of I'm a limb loss survivor. You're still Scott. You're still Kim. You're still a interesting individual, not a lost limb survivor. And so those are things that I would like to teach my kids and hope that that I've actually learned along the way. Well, I dare say with you and your beautiful wife at the forefront, we've got some great generations of characters to come. Yes. (laughs) I want to go into the world of now. Mm -hmm. The world is so uh, maybe dissociated, maybe at polar ends, you know, for instance, and, and I'm not asking you to give, you know, what people should or shouldn't do, but vaccinate, don't vaccinate, travel passport, no travel passport, um, isolate, don't isolate. Like there is there is a lot going on in the world at the moment. I, am I, I may be so bold to say a lot of it feels very fear-driven and that's just my own sense and feeling there. But how are you viewing the world right now? And from an esoteric, spiritual, emotionally intelligent perspective, are we going through a great phase right now or are you really concerned for the future? Well, a bit of both. I think the golden rule that I would give everyone is do not give in to the fear regardless of what is is coming out there fear is is the the greatest uh enemy of your immune system fear drives excess uh adrenal hormones cortisol etc which is shown to drive an increase in interleukin-6 and damages brush border linings and allows you to become more susceptible to infection and there's some really really interesting papers uh published after the spanish flu or during the spanish flu done by uh the u.s navy and they basically took volunteers and they infected them or tried to with the spanish flu they fed people um, snot and and phlegm and they they injected them with um, the particulate of people who've had the Spanish flu or were suffering with it. And none of the volunteers got the flu, none of them died, and they all moved on. Now, this is, this is in the literature. Anyone can go and look it up. And what the conclusion was of the, the study... Um, founders is they determined that they set up the study wrong and that fear was the greatest uh, causation of getting infected and shutting your immune system down and that because they'd taken volunteers who were happy to go through it and had no fear that they were the wrong people to see what the effects of these things were. So, I mean, I love that. I've not seen it replicated anywhere else. We just don't seem to do that sort of thing anymore. But it's a fascinating study. And from that, I I just want people to go, well, you know, we're in the environment, we're in the moment. All we can do is be the kindest, most loving, connected set of people and not fall foul of fear, not kind of drop into tribalism and isolationism, etc., because whatever is occurring is occurring, whether there's agendas, whether there is no agendas, whether it's unfortunate, you know, it doesn't actually matter. What matters is that you can reach out and help and support and be kind to your, your direct family and from them, your community and your tribe and your expansion outwards. And we need to actually connect as people. We need to get rid of these ideas of isms, the isolationisms of dividing people into boxes of color, creed, sexual preference. It's all rubbish. It divides people by the idea of you're different and the brain is hardwired to look at a different, even if it's artificially created, and create a threat response out of it. So all the research out there in the last 60 years shows that the human brain unconsciously views other 
negatively. And it takes consciousness and being in the moment to overcome that. So we want to connect. We don't want to separate is my, my best advice. We need to get past this isolationist of everything and actually get talking to people, get loving people, hug, et cetera. Now, I know people say, yeah, but, but, but touching, et cetera, that's how you spread stuff. Well, maybe so. But again, let's not fear. I'm confident people's immune systems have more to it than, than you know, what we're being told. I mean, the literature suggests that. But connection, that's the way to go as far as my opinion on things is. Yeah. I could talk to you forever, you know Hygiene. this, but Hygiene I also know, I, I was going to say, I was going to say to you, but if hygiene is really yeah. important. This was where I was just going to go with this. If hygiene is really important and we're, and, but you've been talking all about mm. the microbiome and the fragility of that, if we're over cleaning and we're not mm. touching the earth and we're not out in sunshine and we're not fueling our Lamborghini bodies with the best nutrition we can, surely we're upsetting the skin microbiome as much as the gut microbiome and surely there's going to be an impact by being too clean. Am I right There are papers that, that absolutely support that. There are papers out at the moment that shows that people's autoimmune response is directly attributable to what sort of bacteria that they have. Uh, there's a... Uh, a gut vaccine project that's been driven by a researcher in the States for many, many years prior to any of the, the current stuff going on, which is basically looking at this idea that the state of the biome will determine whether you have a good response or a poorer response to any vaccine, which I find really fascinating. Now, I don't know that it's been going long enough to give us any concrete conclusions, but it's interesting research, and I think it's important for us to be considering because, again, some people might have uh, a negative response to a current vaccine of whichever ilk. Maybe that's because their gut bacteria is in a very inflammatory state and looks at these helpful things as being very harmful, and that's where some of the illness actually comes from. Now, again, it's just stuff I've been reading. I don't know whether it's concrete, and I'm not saying, look, you should trust this as... No idea. But I think we need to be continuing to research that to actually look at why some people get sick more regularly and some people have poor reactions to any chemical or any drug or et cetera. The biome has a lot to do with it. The skin biome, absolutely. That the, There's research out there on, uh, on some of the, the previous use of um, hand sanitizers like uh, triclosan, et cetera, and they show that it actually kills off all the bacteria, but it makes you much more susceptible to infection because, of course, it starts breaking down the skin barriers. So that one's been known for a little while and we stopped using it. But I think it, it goes to the, the point of uh, how we use hygiene. And so traditional soap and water doesn't seem to damage the biome particularly uh, on your skin. Uh, so again, that's the stuff that I think is, is probably the most sensible as against necessarily uh, all of the really fancy alcohol-based things. Again, classic tried and true seems to work in most instances equally as much from everything that I can tell at this moment. Now, again, that's not to say that X hand sanitizer, great product doesn't kill things more effectively, but newfangled, which may be better in one aspect, might not be tested for long-term consequences. So we might not have as much long-term health potential out of it. Things like soap and water we've been using very effectively for a very long period of time. And the negative impact is that people seem to get clean and smell nice. I don't have too much problem with that. Uh, well, that's the truth. And then the accumulation effect, that's my concern with all of these things that we're doing at the moment where it feels we're rushing into creating these plaster concepts of fixing it or isolating us or distancing and all of these things. And yet what you're saying, the research has shown, and we've seen it with humans, the less contact we have, the less connection we have, the more our immune system seems to be compromised. What can we do right here, right now, apart from reaching out and connecting with family? Maybe we do have to use a computer or a phone to connect out at the moment. But what else can we do for ourselves to fill our own self-love tank? Well, from my perspective, uh, you need to take time for yourself. 
I think that's a really important thing. If you don't take time for yourself, you're not really creating self-love in any way, shape or form. So time is, is critically important. Self-acceptance, I believe, is, is critically important. Congruent and nourishment. Those are kind of the four pillars that I think are, are most important for current moments. And then once you're kind of rock solid, you're okay with you, you can actually reach out. Because the idea is, is to harmonize yourself so you're not living in a fear response so that when someone reaches out in any other way, whether it's by phone, in person, et cetera, you're not automatically having a knee-jerk reaction of what are they doing? Are they coming to get me? We need to be calm and in the moment and, and congruent so that we can connect. There's only two types of real behavior. There's approach behavior and withdrawal behavior. We need to choose to be an approach response so that when people do approach you, you're accepting of it in whatever form, technology or in person. And like, I'm just hoping that that the world will become a happier, healthier place. And we, we get to living with, with, you know, viruses, et cetera, in the environment like we always have and start to be able to connect in a physical aspect without so much fear um, into the future. I think that's that's something to aspire to. Again, in the meantime, keep clean. You know, if you're unwell, stay home. Uh, if you're not, go about your business. What is your definition of self-love? Well, it, it is. Like my, my thoughts on it really are those four pillars. It, it comes down to making sure, again, I think nourishment is a really under- played part of those uh, those aspects remember nourishment from my perspective is what goes into you it's the thoughts who you hang around and associate with uh how you connect to people whether you smile regularly and people say oh you don't need to smile and there's a whole bunch of stuff about that but emotions are motor patterns okay and people don't really understand that if you don't connect your facial muscles to drive certain motor patterns, you can't express the thought properly. Therefore, you can't express the emotion properly. So having a happy, smiley face allows you to connect with other people because their mirror neurons will mirror yours. And it's much easier to connect with someone and be in the moment with them if you're not frowning at them in the first place. So Take time for both yourself and for others. Accept who you are and know that you are what you are. You can be the better version of you tomorrow, but today I'm me and I'm okay with me. I love this concept of being uh, congruent with my behaviors. I love acting with integrity. Integrity is absolutely imperative. You need to commit and you need to stay committed. And again, you know, people might say, well, that's not love. That's what I think is important in these things. Because again, such as in a marriage by a very traditional concept, you make a commitment and you have to honor that commitment on a daily basis and live with congruence and integrity to honor that commitment. And I, again, I think that's particularly important. Yeah, those, those are what I consider self-love. You have to love you. In, in a certain aspect, and it's not just kind of gushy, oh, I'm in love. It's the things that you do on a day-to-day -day basis that make you here in this moment, able to connect so that the world can become a better place. I love it so much. You know, whenever I come and see you, I drive all the way from the Sunshine Coast to Brisbane to see you. Maybe not as often as I should. You're not allowed to give me a lecture here on my podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I do want to just thank you wholeheartedly from the bottom of my heart and my family's heart for all the work, the research, the passion, the drive, the integrity, the authenticity, and the absolute love that you share your knowledge with. And on behalf of all chiropractors, researchers, nutritionists, biochemists, genetic, um, whatever they're called, experts, I just want to thank you because for some reason you just allow me to bring it all together and tie it in a way that makes it understandable. And I feel very privileged to be in your company and I feel very privileged to have you as one of our main caregivers for my whole family. Just to come to a close, is there one last message for the beautiful listener of the self-love podcast and then perhaps you could finish with your favorite quote right now so 
last thought would be uh, something like my daughter drew a picture many, many years ago uh, at, at high school for us, and it's in our room, and it's a picture of a beautiful little frog, and underneath it, it says, nothing is impossible. Even the word says, I'm possible. And I, I again, I live my life through that lens. My final quote would be something that I say to my patients, especially my new patients on a daily basis, which is everything is the brain. So all that you are, all that you express, all that is happening to you is shaped and dictated by your brain. So if there's something that you're not enjoying, it is an aspect of your brain creating your consciousness. And that's where you need to look for the solutions and the things to alter. So everything's the brain. I love it so much. Thank you, beautiful Scott. Now, if people wanted to follow you or find out more about you, could you just give your beautiful business a plug or how else people can can follow the work that you do? Okay. So uh, my, my practice name is Advanced Rehab and you can happily uh, contact us um, here in Brisbane at Advanced Rehab. Um, look for the website www.advancedrehab.com or optimallife.com.au.au on everything. Um, I'm putting together a, uh, a Patreon podcast series and a tutoring group at this moment, which doesn't actually have a name yet, but uh, wait for this space. It'll be out before the end of the year to try and actually help people uh, learn to live healthier lives and get better nourishment into themselves, as well as looking at some of their their neurological rehabilitation uh, necessities. And there's two types of uh, group. One is for practitioners who actually want more high level, and the other is for more of the general public who who just want to live more expansively and expressively at that moment. So that's coming. Uh, watch the space. Uh, cannot wait. And socials, are you on any social media platform? Uh, we're on Facebook and uh, Instagram at uh, Advanced Rehab, um, Advanced Rehab HQ, I think, as well. Um, and they, they nice. ask me for data, and uh, cleverer people than me keep posting it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, to you and your amazing team and to all the people whose lives you impact, as I said, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much. And thank you for being a guest on the Self Love Podcast, dear Scott. You are most welcome. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family and head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.